We're still working our way through the Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew's Gospel and the distribution of it as found through uh, Luke's Gospel. We've finished, we've gone from 5-2 of Matthew all the way down to 7-6, pearls before swine or pigs. We've covered a humongous chunk of it. Yeah, there's... Theoretically, we could finish tonight, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what we can do. So turn to Matthew 7, 7. Matthew 7, verse 7. And while you're at it, put your finger at Luke eleven nine. Matthew 7, verse 7, and Luke 11, verse 9. Oh, God bless coffee. Whoever it was that figured out that they could crush that bean, run water through it, and make a wonderful gift like this, God bless them. God bless them. I hope they're in heaven. And it's good for your heart. Very good for your heart, we found out. Matthew 7, 7, Luke 11, 9. I'm going to start in Matthew 7, 7. And um, let's just read it. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. And everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, heaven, your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Hmm. Hmm. Well, thanks for calling us evil instead hmm. of falling a little short of the target. Hmm. Let's look at how Luke handles yeah. it. Luke eleven nine. So keep your finger at seven seven and go to eleven nine of Luke. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, did you notice the strong echoing characteristic of these two. I mean, down to word choice, word order, grammar, everything. It is the same if you, if you break it down into sense groups here. Um, ask and it will be given you. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Knock and the door will be opened for you. It's essentially identical between Matthew and Luke. Um, continuing in Matthew, verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, Luke uh, eleven ten. For everyone who asks receives, Matthew 8, a, uh, 8b, uh, 7, 8b. And everyone who searches finds, Luke 
uh, 11:10b and everyone who searches finds Matthew 7 verse 8c and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened Luke 11:10c and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened word for word the same this is usually cited by scholarship along with many of the others that we have seen by scholarship who support the concept of Q they say this is yet another example of the literary dependence of Matthew and Luke upon an earlier written source there is no way at all that these two authors writing independently could possibly have reproduced this exact same wording even from an oral sermon that Jesus preached. There is no way that it could have been reproduced exactly word for word, grammar structures, word choice without there having been a pre-existing written source. This is a text case example, a textbook case example of how it functions. And we've seen it. I mean, I took it, I even broke it down into poor partial verses. And it's word for word the same until you get to verse 9. In Matthew and verse 11 in Luke. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for fish, will give a snake? That's Matthew. Luke, is there any among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Oh, stone is missing. Bread and stone is missing. Matthew's use of bread and stone is gone. Not there. He's more colorful. But the second half of Matthew's, the second half of Matthew's, or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? That's the same. If your child asks for a fish, we'll give a snake. That's Luke's first. Then Luke adds something that's not in Matthew. Verse 12, or if the child asks for an egg, we'll give a scorpion. So they both have in common fish or snake. Matthew has bread and stone, which Luke leaves out. Luke has egg and scorpion, which Matthew leaves out. So the question comes up amongst Q scholarship, considering the close literary dependence of the preceding couple of verses, what was in the original? What was in Q? And you've got multiple different theories as to the answer to that question. One theory is, is that it was all in Q. You had bread and stone. You have... Um, uh, uh, fish and snake and you've got egg and scorpion and all of it was there and for some reason Matthew left off egg and scorpion and for some reason Luke left off bread and stone and they both included fish and snake but that theory is far too cumbersome it's hard to hold that theory intact because you'd have to explain why Matthew would drop the last one and why Luke would drop the first one. In fact, Luke's is harder. It's, it's, it's a little more, it's a little easier to deal with to, to, to have that bread and stone. 
This last one is 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 more iffy. Egg and scorpion. Ooh. So that's one theory that that they all three were present in Q. Matthew leaves out the last one. Luke leaves out the first one. But that argument's the weakest. I believe because Luke would be much more on the bread and stone guy. Oh yeah. The imagery of the bread. And the stone. Oh yeah. Where um, yes. He never left that out. I was wondering if the King James version fixed Luke. Because in, in the King James Version, but not the New International. Thank you, somebody in the evening class has the King Jimmy. Read it. Uh, verse 11, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him Thank a you. That's Luke. That's in Luke King in the King Jimmy. Oh, so I was wondering if somebody recognized yes. that and put fixed Luke so that it would match Matthew. Many manuscripts. This is the note in the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament apparatus. It says, many manuscripts insert before a fish the words bread, you will not hand him a stone, will you? or even. In other words, um, manuscripts, there are manuscripts, many manuscripts, including the manuscripts that sit behind the King James, which include the Matthian wording in the Lucan passage and puts all three together. Jeez. Hence, there are scholars who see that as actually the original <laughs> reading because Actually, the majority of manuscripts do this. Including the manuscripts that sit behind the King James, the majority of the manuscripts that exist include all three in Luke. And there are some scholars who say that lends weight to the theory that Q had all three in it. And the earliest copies, because I'm getting ready to read that part, of Luke leave it out. Because... Papyrus 45, Papyrus 75, Codex Vaticanus, and Manuscript 1241 all leave out all those manuscripts, one, two, three, four, all four of them, four out of thousands, leave out the bread and the stone. Those four are the earliest, though, aren't they? And they happen to be, P45 is the very earliest and Vaticanus and P75, those three are the earliest copies of Luke's Gospel that we have. And 1241, while it's not the earliest, is an important one. So the earliest and best manuscripts leave out bread and stone in Luke. Hence, most modern scholarship today just a second, I want to double check on that in here, just to make doubly sure. Yep. Um, yeah, the, yeah, there is no question with regards to the antiquity of, and the strength of the claim that, that um, bread and stone should be left out because these manuscripts are determinative. They are really determinative here. Piece 45, P75, Vaticanus, and 1241 
all say that it should not be included, whereas quite a few manuscripts, including ADRW, the Lake and Freer families of minuscules, and all of the manuscripts that lay behind the King James include bread and stone in Luke. So there's a textual problem here. The textual problem, the solution to it doesn't help our problem. The, select, the textual problem would say it ought to be there. And if you accept that the majority of manuscripts ought to rule, then yes, that solves the problem. Unfortunately, the majority of manuscripts aren't always correct. It's the earliest witnesses. And when you get things like manuscripts like P45, P75, and Vaticanus together all saying the same thing, that Luke should not include bread and stone because the earliest copies lacked it, that weight, that strength in the argument outweighs the numbers, which are copies of them or of others. And so it becomes the King James tries to fix it and anticipating the theory essentially that Q would have had it and but it, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem at all. So we get back to, we're back to the original question. What was in Q? An alternative theory to what was in Q was that Q only had one. Yeah. The fish and the snake. Matthew adds bread and stone. Luke adds egg and scorpion. Nah. Nah. It's an interesting theory. It's an interesting solution to the problem. But it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. Um... Let's see. What do they say about Matthew, though? What do the manuscripts say about Matthew? Well, the Ma the Matthew, it, it, there isn't, there's no ambiguity in Matthew. Okay, so it's, it's all the way from the earliest on up, it says. Uh, yeah. Stone. I was just double-checking this in the Nestle Elan, in the textual apparatus for, for verse 11 and following, and it doesn't. It doesn't contain any references to a textual problem here where they tried, they didn't try to add egg and scorpion later on to solve the problem. Yeah. It's, that's not there. So the alternative answer is that you know you only had one. Well, that really doesn't work either. Most scholarship tends to, uh, to posit the theory that Matthew contains the more original reading. That for some reason Luke left out bread and stone and added in a different one that's harsher. An so, egg and a scorpion. Doesn't that sound reversed? Not necessarily. Luke trying to bring his point home makes it harder, makes it harsher. Makes it, makes it more difficult if you look at it. Uh, a snake instead of a fish, ow. A, a fish is a good thing. A snake is an evil thing. An egg is a good thing. If you like scrambled eggs, that's yeah. an, I do. An egg is a great thing. The incredible edible egg. An egg is a great thing, but a scorpion's an evil thing. Both of these are 
indisputably evil. You're giving evil something evil instead of something good. Remember, the context is, will a father, uh, a parent, give if asked for a fish, give a snake? No. Asked for an egg, give a scorpion? No. Both of those are evil things. You're not going to give an evil thing, even though you yourself are evil. You're, not, you're going to give good things to your children if they ask for them. Probably even if they don't ask for them. Matthew's rendering... Bread or rock? Well, that kind of that kind of is a little weaker, but it actually flows a little better because a rock kind of looks like bread. Now, of course, you could make the argument that the snake tastes like chicken, but <laughs> but I mean, I know someone who would do that. <laughs> but the argument is is that Luke makes it harder, so he drops the first. Because he wants to maintain the Jewish um, chiastic couplet of two examples. So he doesn't want three. So he drops the bread and the rock and he adds a created egg and scorpion. Whereas Matthew maintains the original reading much more closely, not only there, but in the very end. In the very end where it says in, in Matthew, how much more will your, heaven, your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Whereas Luke changes it to how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? A much more specific gift, which is, of course, a good thing, but Matthew's is more general, less specific, and actually coordinates better with give good gifts to, you will give good gifts to your children, the Father will give good things to you. So the parallelism works better in Matthew. All right. Uh, studies of Matthew on its oral characteristics here tends to lend our weight to the argument that the oral rendering as found in Matthew sounds more original than the rendering in Luke, which sounds harsher and, and more literate, but less oral in character. The argument moves from the absurd to the reasonable, from lesser to the greater. The earthly father will not give a son who begs of him something for sustenance a fish or an egg, something similar looking, but which is possible, a possible source of evil to him. The good that the son seeks will surely be given without any deception or equivocation. God, too, will give only good to his children who seek it from him. Indeed, he will give them the supreme gift, the Holy Spirit. His bounty thus transcends that of earthly parents because he is essentially good and not evil, as they are known to be. Human bounty is still only a trifle in comparison with what the Heavenly Father, with, with the Heavenly Father's bounty. The idea is if a human father will give something good, regardless of the fact that the human father is a fallen human being, 
the Heavenly Father will absolutely give good. And in Luke's interpretation, that's all, the best gift is always the Holy Spirit. And you see that not just in Luke's Gospel, you see it also in the Acts of the Apostles. So the ending of it has definitely been adjusted by Luke. And the idea is Luke is trying to make the extreme of, instead of good, will you give evil, much more extreme to make his point. He's swinging the pendulum in hyperbolic statement to make his point. Whereas the original would have been a weaker oral version of the teaching. A stone isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing, but if you're expecting bread, it's a bad thing. It works quite well. A snake, you know, if you kill it and chop it up and fry it, you got, you know, you've got good food, but not to a Jew who can't eat a snake. Snakes are unclean. You know, you'd rather have a fish that you can eat. That's the better thing. So, yes, good and evil are communicated here, and a father will give bread and fish, common everyday sustenance for a Jew. Living in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, what did you eat usually? You ate bread and fish. That was, that was your diet. That's what he fed the masses with, too. Ah, uh, yes! Yes! The loaves and the fishes. With all those stones they were sitting on. <laughs> so here we've got an, um, something that works well in Matthew, which probably actually echoes better the original in Q. At least that's the opinion of most scholarship. I tend to agree. I think Luke dropped the bread and the stone because he saw that as a weaker harshness and created the egg and the scorpion because that is a stronger, harsher, more clearly dichotomous good versus evil. The egg and the scorpion. Where um, bread and the stone is just illogical. Uh, uh, you know, and, and yeah. to a group of people who you know, follow dietary rules, you would be a fool. Well, you're going to eat bread anyway. But it also reflects one of the temptations in the wilderness. Do you take these stones and turn them into bread? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. which, would, which would, since they, have, they know that so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that the original bread more like Matthew's here. And then the, the lineup of father, your earthly fathers give good things to their kids, not bad things. So your heavenly father will give you really good things. That idea is present in Matthew and works well orally. Whereas in Luke, he's artificially replaced what your heavenly father gives you. Yes, the Holy Spirit's a good thing. He would say it's the best good thing. Yeah, he's making that decision for you. Yes, precisely. And I'm wondering if he's, he's choosing to change that because in Matthew, his audience are um, people who, who study the Bible and are brought up within the um, religious community so they would be familiar with the, low, or the stones being uh, mm -hmm. te a temptation. Yeah. Um, and so that illusion would, would not escape them. But these... The audience that Luke is uh, speaking to, possibly a majority of them would not have that 
background, and so the illusion would be a loss. Could well be. They'd have a greater diversity of items to eat. That's what bothers me about this whole thing, because I think, you know, I don't want to be picky, but Luke's people could, and they, and they you know, got historic everywhere, all over the earth, the Aborigines, whatever, they eat well, scorpions. Yeah, but right? the Gentiles don't. The Gentiles that Luke would be all writing to are mostly Greek-based Gentiles. They didn't eat scorpions. Okay, did they get stoned by in, in death? What was the meaning for the Gentiles? How they get killed? The Jews, the Jews could get stoned, obviously. Yeah, well, yeah. In the bad sense. I know what you mean. <laughs> I knew what you meant. I knew what you meant. How would you get killed? They crucified them. They ran them through with swords. Hacked in the bitch, chopped their heads off, that kind of thing. So they didn't usually stone. The no, woman no, no. would not have been stoned. For not for a Gentile. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that, that means that the stone could have a lot of evil connotations also. To for the, Jew. To the Jews for Matthew, but for Luke... Not they as much so. You know, okay. It's there, but it's not as much so. But the scorpion would. Maybe the scorpion would. Scorpion would be problematic, especially if what you what you want is scrambled eggs and you get scorpions. Ugh. No, no, thank you. So I, I think that the argument that Luke harshifies <laughs> makes harsher the statement to get his point across. I think is should be really taken note of. He does. He makes it a much harder set of statements. To get his point across. Well, if he can, if he can completely change the ending, uh-huh. you know, I, I, I wouldn't yeah. have any doubt that he could do well, that. Well, I would say that Matthew wouldn't argue that the gift of the Holy Spirit is a good thing. It's just that it, he's more general, at, and I would say Jesus was more general at this point yeah. in terms of what the gift would be. Certainly, the Holy Spirit would be included in good things, but but for math for Luke, it's much more important to point out. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the best good thing. And that's what you're going to get. And especially if you take it in context with what was said earlier, a portion we've, we've jumped over. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Well, is that true for everything and everyone at every time? I mean... Uh, God, I'd like to have a Cadillac, please. No. What you have to ask for, what you have to knock for, what you have to search for are the things that God wants you to have, the good things that God wants you to have. Not bad things that are for you, not the things of your lusts, of your heart, but, but but good things that God wants you to have. So ask for, search for, and knock for those things that are in God's will for you and you'll get them. That's the basic idea. And remember this is following immediately upon in Matthew's gospel following immediately from the pearls before pigs where he tells them don't teach, don't spread the good things of God out before the dogs. Don't give the good things of God out before the pigs because they'll just they'll just trample and destroy it and turn and bite you. They'll they'll destroy it, they'll they'll tear it up. If you don't have discernment as to um, the audience that wishes that will receive the message, you're gonna be throwing it out and, and wasting it. You should instead have discernment for where to proclaim this gospel message. 
where to cast your pearls, what to ask for, what to search for, what to knock for. Not just anything, but the things that God wants you to have. The good things. Just as your heaven, just as your earthly father will give you bread and a fish, not a rock and a snake, so also your heavenly father will give you good things, even better things. And, and to an audience that wandered the desert for 40 years searching yeah. and being given manna by God sure. in a field of rocks. Heavenly bread. Mm -hmm. yeah. This would make so much more sense. Yeah. Matthew echoes loudly. That makes sense, but the scorpions is what they would have seen for 40 years too. That's that the bad things. Yeah, no. Why wouldn't we? That's the bad things. I, I still don't see Luke. Luke, I thought, usually talked of you'd have to image. You were he's creative, like you said. It was more complex usually. Uh huh. More complex, but in a positive literary sense. And in this case, uh, it, it's weird. It, earlier on, we saw where Luke preserved the more original reading. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bless, you know, whereas in, in Matthew, it was interpreted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But we also saw that that wasn't always the case that Luke retained the original. Sometimes Luke's setting, Luke's character, Luke's audience would cause him to adjust the reading, to apply the reading, to interpret the reading as he does here, to make his point to a different kind of audience. And that results in actually Matthew retaining the clearer reading, at least from Q. At least from Q. Otherwise, you have to answer the question, why does Matthew leave out egg and scorpion? And he does. Why does Matthew leave out egg and scorpion? And you can't come up with a good answer for that one. And don't we have questions like that about Matthew and other places? Sure we do. Okay. I was just going to say because he could. Because he could. He had but, two important things. Why muck him up with three but couplets? Couplets. It's the couplet structure. Mm -hmm. It's what you normally do. Mm -hmm. It's what you normally do. But did Jesus pre use three examples here? That's a good preaching style too today. Yeah, three is. points in a three points in a poem make a good sermon, <laughs> as the joke usually goes. Uh, but in this case, no. It seems like there's a desire to maintain the couplet teaching system. And, and it looks like Luke jettisoned the first one and created a third to make his point, to nail it home in order to be able to make it very clear. If, if evil parents give their children good, not this extremely evil stuff, snakes and scorpions, then, then you certainly have a heavenly Father is going to give you the greatest good, which is the Holy Spirit. I see that as the strongest argument there. Like if he can change, you know, make it the Holy Spirit demon wrong, you know, he can certainly. He can certainly add. Yes, he can be a little yeah. hyper, hyperbolic. 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 Yes, he, uh -huh. can, yeah, he can exaggerate. <laughs> which is also a good Jewish technique, by the way, hyperbole. Mm -hmm. um, um, yes, I did have a concern about um, the the word evil. 
I was coming to that. Okay. That's next. Evil. Oh, now you say you have Verse 11 and verse 13. Matthew 7, 11 and Luke 11, 13. Both in the NRSV render it evil. The Greek word in both cases, it's the same word. And it is the word poneroi. Poneroi, poneria, means literally only in the ethical sense, wickedness, baseness, maliciousness, sinfulness. Other possible renderings would include um, sick, spiritually weak, spiritually uh, lax. So evil is a really strong translation, really rough translation, and does convey a sense of the idea, but wicked or base or malicious or masochistic uh, would be Homer stronger. Simpson comes to mind <laughs> as a father. Yeah, Homer Simpson as a father. Yeah. Well, it, worse than Homer. Banging in your head. Huh? Kind of worse than Homer. Homer wanted good things for his kids, but he was more interested in himself. And that starts getting close to the idea. It's a self-centeredness. Um, it's when you talk about, well, you know, you know the... The, the passion of Penelope Pitstop, where you have the, the evil uncle who, you know, <laughs> and he ties Penelope up to the railroad track. Help! Help! And he ties her up to the railroad track, you know, to kill her. And it's that laughter. <laughs> that kind of, you know, roll your hands together. That, 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 that stereotypical kind of evil bit is... Um, kind of what you're talking about here in a sense it, it, the desire to get your own way regardless of who's hurt that kind of wickedness which is worse than sinfulness it sounds like it well it that it's is that's the extreme of it yes exactly it's extreme sinfulness yeah um because we're all sinners and it's can be understood in relative characteristic to god it's evil in that sense. I, when you read, when it reads, it reads this way in both. You go, "Wow!" If you then who are evil, you could translate that maybe a little bit better. If you then who are wicked, if you then who are fallen, if you then who are sinners, if you then who tend to be kind of self-centered, egotistical type of people. Nevertheless, give good things to your kids. How much more will your heavenly Father, who is perfect in glory and love, give good things, the Holy Spirit, to you? So that's the idea. Does that help? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do other translations render it? I've checked all four, all four of them. They're evil. Evil. Evil, evil, evil. Well, it is a classic word for evil, but it's a relative term. And it reflects, it's more understood relative to God. I can just see an audience going, ooh, <laughs> I don't, 
I don't want to be evil, and so I'm not going to listen to this. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go to evil medical school to be called Mr. Evil. <laughs> Dr. Evil. <laughs> yes, I know, that, that movie's kind of ruined that, hasn't it? <laughs> okay, let's keep going. We come to one of the most wonderful verses in Scripture. It's found in Matthew 7:12 and Luke 6:31. And they're identical, more or less. And everything do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. That's in Matthew 7:12. Luke 6:31 reads, "Do to others as you would have them do" you huh that's interesting what's the context in which Luke renders this 631 it's from within a context uh, 627 and following but I say to you yeah. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. You remember this from earlier, don't you? Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's in the middle of the teaching on the loving of the enemy, which we've already dealt with. He's inserted it into that, in that whole section on loving the enemy which in Luke follows almost immediately after the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. We're back to the Beatitudes. Did you notice on the chart? Down here, it takes the golden rule from towards the end of Matthew's rendition, and it's the only one that goes the other direction. He distributes it not down later in Luke. Luke distributes it upwards, all the way back up into chapter 6 at the end of the Beatitudes. And he's inserted it into the midst of loving the The golden rule is in the midst of loving the enemy. This is not just how you treat your neighbors in the church. According to Jesus in Luke, this is how you deal with your enemies. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, that's not a friendly thing. If anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again, verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Yeah, but see what follows from, I mean, directly from that, the way, because he's inserted it right there. Mm -hmm. Just reverse it. Well, let me see. Somebody took stuff away, so I'm going to steal from you, and what I want to have happen is. I want you to be really loving me because I stole from you. And that's exactly what it says. No. I mean, that's exactly what it do says. Do to, to back. others as you would have them do to Well, I would have you not pursue me and give me even more when I steal from you by definition. <laughs> give me a break. That's what it's saying here. Okay. There are three golden rules. 
Golden rule number one, he who has the gold rules. That's correct. <laughs> Golden yeah. rule number two, do to others as you would have them do to you. Golden rule number three, do unto others before they yeah, do that's unto right. you. We'll do it first, that's right. Or, that's right. There's also golden rule number four, Larry Flint's rendition, do to others while they're doing it unto you. <laughs> and there's a fifth version of it, which is actually a corollary, which solves your problem. Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. And that's the Buddhist way of looking at it. That is the Confucius approach. And it's a direct corollary of Jesus's. It's direct corollary. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. One is the corollary of the other. So why do we switch it, do you think? Because Jesus preferred to be positive rather than negative. Jesus' approach was a positive approach. Do to others as you would have them do to you instead of restrictive, negative, don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. Did he say a lot of things about the Pharisees that don't, don't be... Oh, sure. Of course he did. Of course he does. But here he's, here he's giving a positive. Yes, he's making it more positive. You know, as a teacher, we're infamous for our rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And you walk in and it's posted. Do not do this. Do not do this. Um, for the last 15 years, you won't see that on my board. We, first of all, everybody um, agrees and creates their own rules. Each class gets there to make one. And then they have to take the negative and turn it into a positive. So I have oh, very simple, be prompt, be polite, be prepared. Three, done. The positive approach mm -hmm. actually has... Beyond time. I'm sorry? Yeah. Beyond time for a teacher? Amen. The positive no, approach me. tends oh. to have a greater strength to it, a certain moral integrity to it, as opposed to the negative approach. But that Confucian approach is, is the direct corollary of Jesus's. You really can't have one without the other. Not really. Um, in the context of what just went before us, Notice this is in, in Matthew's rendition, in everything, you know, with regards to what you're asking for, with how you're living and treating people, with not judging folks and judging a brother, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. And when you fulfill, when you do that, this is the law and the prophets. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What was his answer? Um, you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul. Mm -hmm. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second commandment. And it flows direct from it. If you've done that, you've done this. In the positive sense. The positive sense. Luke 13, 23, 24. Paralleled with Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Matthew, we'll read Matthew first. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. 
For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Ooh. I don't like that. The gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I want to have the easy road and the wide gate. Well, sorry. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. If you want a wide gate and an easy road, you can have it. But it leads to destruction. And a whole lot of people want it and they take it. The gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. Unfortunately, there are few who find that one. That does not sound super positive if you don't no, know what I'm That's extraordinarily difficult. Let's look how Luke dealt with this one. Someone asked him, Luke 13, 23, someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able. He softens it. It's still not great. It's a narrow door. Suck it in. Come on, we gotta squeeze through this door. Oh gosh, it's tight. I gotta go back to the gym. Oh damn. Oh. But it's doable. In other words, the answer to the question is nope. Only a few will be saved. You got it right, kid. Only a few will be saved. Oh, he really doesn't say that, though, does he? He makes you intuit that. It's interpreted. You have to intuit it, yes. Lord, will only a few be saved? And he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. They're too fat, <laughs> spiritually. But it also could mean, in a couple of, many will make it, too. You don't know. From this one, you do from Matthew, but not from Luke. If you look in Matthew, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. You got to go the hard road, and you've got to go through the narrow gate. Because the easy road and the big wide gate are the way that leads to destruction. But if you want to go to heaven, you want to go to life, true life, then you've got to go the hard road and the narrow gate. And there are few who find it. That's really hard. <laughs> I don't like that. Sorry, Jesus. I don't like that. Well, okay. Who's Jesus? Who, who, he's God. Yeah. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. As John tells us, he's God incarnate in human flesh. As we learned in the incarnation story in Luke, 
You know, he, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and Jesus was born. A gift of God. God's own son. Okay. Well, that means that if I don't like it, too whoopty bad for me. I thought you might think that perhaps Q was quoted in this case. Especially if you look at Luke. One of the principles of determining which is the better reading is which of the readings do you like the least? Yes. Which of the readings is the hardest to accept? And in this case, it's Matthew. Yeah. Luke makes it a little easier. You know, I was being facetious, but the point is there. It's a narrow door, and many will not be able to enter it. Many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Whereas in Matthew, it's not, they're not even trying. They just don't find it. They go, do 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 let's go down the easy road to the big door. do 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 oops. Coffee breaks over on your head. <laughs> Literally. Whereas... The hard road, the road that you, you don't want to go down because it's tough, is the road that goes to a narrow gate. That one gets you life. That's where you find true life. I don't like that, Jesus. Well, too bad. You know, That's how Matthew deals with it. Matthew is probably closer to the original. Luke softened the puppy up nicely. What happened to the golden rule and all? He who has the gold rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly do right. unto others as you would have them do to you. If I was going to make an analogy, if I was going to make an analogy, I would say that Matthew is the high school teacher and Luke is the elementary teacher, because Matthew goes, "Oh, you didn't do your homework. You don't pass my class." And in the New International Interpretation, says, "Make every effort to do your homework." Otherwise, you might not pass my class. Oh. Softer, kinder. kinder. Somewhat. And I know what my students would do. If I said, make every, like in the New International, it says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. If I said, make every effort to turn in your work, I would have zero. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I made the effort. That's how they translate strive to enter. Mm -hmm. We strive across the, yeah, across the board the, except for the, the NIV. See what they say NIV, yeah, what does the interpretation say? Yeah, 24, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, 15, 24, Calvinistic type thing. That's the Presbyterian interpreter there. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's what it is. We shouldn't let him in. Uh, Matthew is harder, but that's probably reflecting the more original reading. Now think about it. Think about it in the context of what we just heard as you were saying in the Golden Rule. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. Is that easy? No, that's hard. That's the hard road. 
The easy road is to do unto others before they do unto you. But that way leads to a big wide door that goes into that place where they give you a coffee break, but then you have to get back on your head with your head down in the muck. Whereas the hard road is do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's not easy. But it's the road that leads to the narrow gate that leads to life. That follows immediately. This follows immediately from that. He's really hitting it hard at the end of this sermon here. He's bringing this sermon to a really hard conclusion. What comes next? Luke, uh, excuse me, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, trees and fruit, which you find straight across in Luke 6, 43 through 44. Oh, boy. Actually, there's a second parallel in Matthew. Matthew 12, 33 through 35, but I, we won't go there yet. 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come into you in... <laughs> Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Man, those, those uh, wolves in sheep's clothing are trouble, aren't they? They're just trouble. I'm reminded of that cartoon where Coyote and, and the sheepdog are... Or they, they like punch in on a time clock and the sheep guard goes to protect the sheep and Wiley Coyote goes to try to steal the sheep. And he goes up to one of the sheep and he picks him up on his back and kind of goes away. And when he gets away from the herd, he sets the sheep down, gets out his neckerchief, puts it on, starts to sharpen up his knives because he's going to eat the sheep. The sheep stands up in his hind legs, pulls the zipper down, steps out of the sheep's garment, and it's the sheep dog yes. who then hits Coyote on the head. Poor Coyote. Poor Coyote, my rear. <laughs> what he's saying here is got to be careful about the false prophets. They may look like sheep, but they're really ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Now, just let's stop right there. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says, you will know them by their fruits? You will know them by their fruits. What does that mean? How do, how do we understand that? Well, um, by what we create around us, if we are, if we are the vine of Christ, by what we do, by what we produce, 
by our kids? By an extension. Well, I was going to ask you if Luke or Matthew were fathers. Yes, yes by our children. <laughs> you know, in teaching, you know, I always used to say, oh, you know, um, you got to teach, treat each child individually. You know, and nowadays I go, the apple does not fall far from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't say that if you knew my son. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I think the fruits, of, you know, it's almost like the fruits of labor, the fruits, what is the result? What comes out of this? What's what the outcome? You? Thank you. The outcome. What have you produced in your deeds, in your actions? What is the outcome? Oh, what is what's the, the bottom line? Bottom line, in a sense, what have you produced? We often wanting to shift this puppy over to children. Uh, let's take it away from there for a minute. It's what have you produced? What do your actions produce? It's the old thing on your deathbed. Are you going to be real concerned about that board meeting or where you got blank, blank, and blank and millions for the company? Or are you going to maybe you went out and helped some homeless person that night or something or did something else that might be more or your family or whatever? What are you going to think of on your? That's what I always think of. What's a bad couple minutes? What's a bad tree and what's bad fruit? Well, I was thinking. A tree always has sap running through it, which would be the Holy Spirit. And if, and its branches and its leaves then um, extend out because it's fed. And a bad tree is not fed. It's final and flown our cork. Well, a bad tree doesn't do anything either. This is kind of the tree that uh, you might use to tie a fence to get the best. But it doesn't, doesn't produce, produce fruit, fruit, period. Right, it doesn't produce fruit. Kind of I mean, it's not as things. if the apple tree, a bad apple tree, produces pears. I mean, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> it, 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 um, that I, I mean, you can have good fruit. And you have a, you have an apple that has bugs in it, and you put that apple with bugs in it into a barrel that has no bugs in the fruit. What's going to happen? The bugs from the bad apple will go in and eat the good apples. One bad apple ruins the whole bunch, as the saying goes. Well, that, yeah, that, where he get it from? That image is a valid one, but the tree, a, a bad tree doesn't produce fruit, which in a sense is its own bad fruit. The lack of fruit is in a sense bad fruit, mm -hmm. in a metaphorical sense. And I think that's what is intended well, here. Yeah, and uh, you know, I just started realizing that because there, there's this idea of either doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing, but then there's the middle ground people take, doing the nothing. Doing the nothing is still going down the easy road to the wide Boy, gate. Yeah. Like the shirts, the apathetic shirts, I don't give a damn about apathy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the idea. The other shirt was not to decide, is to decide. Not to decide is to decide. Oh, yeah. So says Rush, the um, band. Oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's right. The, um, the idea here follows directly upon what we just read about the, uh, the narrow gate and the road. The hard road is the road that produces good fruit. The easy road is the bad fruit road. 
I mean, and you don't have to do much at all. You don't have to produce anything, really. That's bad fruit in and of itself, as we said. Now let's take a look at a similar parallel also in Matthew. Matthew 12, 33 through 35. This is way outside the Sermon on the Mount, but it applies. It is a parallel concept. 12.33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So you can identify the quality of one's living by the produce, by the bottom line. For the tree is known by its fruit, i.e., thus you will know them by their fruits. To to quote verse 20 and verse 15 of 7. Well, here, for the tree is known by its fruit. Verse 34, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? When you are evil. <laughs> for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at the parallel in Luke, which combines both of these. Luke 6, 43 through 45. 643 through 45. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of the heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Well, what does that mean? I think it's back to the other one where it says, you're going to be judged for every bad word you say, every word you say later on. Ouch. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When, just as you can tell the character of someone's character by the fruit they produce or don't produce, so also you can tell a whole lot by what they say. Have you ever had a thought come to your mind and the next thing you know you see that thought coming out of your mouth in the form of words and you wish you could reach out and grab them and shove them back in but you can't, it's done, they're out there? Oh, damn it, come on back in. I don't want that to be said. Too late, you spoke it. Think it, out mouth. That, that, that's what we're talking about here. Out of the abundance of the heart, remember, the, the ancient peoples tend to put the thought center in your heart, not in your head. The abundance of the heart means the abundance of your whole being, your whole intellect, your mind, who you are. Your mouth will speak. So you got to be careful about that thing right there, the mouth. It's an evil little thing right there. will speak things that you wish it wouldn't say. Unfortunately, that then reflects the reality of your inner being.
He really does. The good person, notice what it says, verse 45 of Luke 6. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Let us see if it uses the same word in Luke as it used in Matthew. Luke 6.43. Following. Agathos, ha agathos anthropos ectu agathu. Oh, thesuron te cardias. Pro ferai tu agathon. Kai ha paneros, evil. Ectu paneru, evil. Proferai to proneron, evil. Ekgar perisumatos, cardias, la te stoma autu. It's exactly the same. The good person, Agathos, the good person, out of the good treasure, ectu agathu thesuru, out of the good treasure, of the heart, taste cardias, produces good. Proferai to agathon, produces good, produces the good, literally. So uh, the, the, it's the simple word agathon, good, in Greek. And the simple word poneros, evil, bad, sinful, wicked. We, it's the same word as was used earlier. Very powerful statement, too. A very strong statement. And well-written statement. And you can see it echoing much of the content here, both between Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and Matthew 12, 33 through 35. But did Luke or Matthew not see any contradiction in... The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart versus you are all evil and yet look what you do to your children, how you help your children now. You are all evil twice. Mm-hmm. And then, then they're telling us, well, if you're evil, you don't have a shot. The, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Evil produces evil. Good produces good. If you, being evil, produce anything that is good, where the hell does it come from? Why did you call me evil twice, both you guys and Jesus? Where where does does the good come from if evil produces evil? It comes from from God. Yeah, it comes from God. Anything good at all comes from God. Period. Be it from a good person or from an evil person. Good question, though. <laughs> well, implicit, the implicit eternal contradiction is how can, how can you say in the earlier statement that you who are evil give good things to your children. Well, it's all relative again. 
It's not, it's not an absolute evil concept. I mean, I'm sure that Adolf Hitler did some very nice things for Eva Braun. <laughs> Otherwise, she wouldn't have hung around with him for so long. But he was an evil man. But I don't, I don't think, even as evil as he was, I do not think that he was 100% evil. He drew some pretty good pictures, I say. Hmm? Uh, here's a good example. I've been reading a little bit about um, Goering, Hermann Goering, who was the head of the Luftwaffe. Did you know that he was personally responsible for rescuing a bunch of Jews at the very beginning of the persecutions in, the, in Nazi Germany? And was so uh, disturbed by the final solution that he resigned and was replaced and uh, was arrested towards the end. I mean, as evil as he was, there was good in him. There was some good in him. Where'd that good come from? It, it came from the good that had been done to him by when he was a child from others from his adopted father, who was a Jew. Uh -huh. I'm serious. There are some interesting things in, in Hermann Goring's life that, that make you go, hmm. So yeah, evil, doing evil things, supporting the Fuhrer to the very end, even when he was being arrested by the Fuhrer's forces. But... Uh, he, he had some good in him. He, delivered, he, he managed to rescue a lot of Jews. He you know, opposed the invasion of, uh, of uh, Switzerland by the, by the Nazi forces. I mean, lots of things that he did that were positive, but he himself was serving an evil state and he himself did lots of evil things. That's interesting. So it's always a relative thing. Like the Dirty Dozen when you mentioned the German. Uh, the dirty Dozen were so evil, but they did some good things. Uh -huh. I like that a lot, supposedly. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Story. Oh, yeah. A lot of evil. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Matthew 7, 21. Lord, Lord. Paralleled up with Luke 6, 46. Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and, you, and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evil doers. We started tonight. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. That seems a very inclusive statement, doesn't it? But here... Jesus in Matthew, same chapter, 
Less than 15 verses away, he is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Aha. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds and everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Um, unless that includes give me a Cadillac and you get it, it must be in accordance with God's will in all of those circumstances. That's back at Matt and Matthew 7, 7 that, and 8. That must be in accordance with God's will. Same thing here, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Well, that sounds pretty good. Cast out demons in your name. That sounds pretty good. I mean, you know, that's great. And do many deeds of power in your name. Wow, those are all fabulous things. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Huh? How can these three things be evildoers? And everybody has a different version of, of the word evildoers. Okay. What are, the, what are the translators there saying? What, what? NIV is evildoer. Uh-huh. NAS is you who practice law lawlessness. Amplified. Got to hear from those guys. You who act wickedly, in brackets, disregarding my commands. Uh, there you go. Huh? And finally, King Jimmy says, depart from ye, me, ye that work iniquity. In the, the workers of iniquity. Workers of iniquity. Go away from me, you evildoers. And it reads literally in the from, from the Greek, apohuretai ap imoi, go away from me or depart from me. Oi ergaxomenoi, erga, erg, energy, workers, doers, energizers of, tain anomien. Anomien, it's a different word, anomi. Hmm. Another word for evil. Doers of iniquity, evil. True, deep evil. How do you get that from people who prophesy in Jesus' name, cast out demons in Jesus' name, and do many deeds of power in Jesus' name? They may have used his name, but they didn't know his heart. Used his name, didn't know his heart, didn't do it in accordance with his will. That's the biggie. And did it with themselves as or the focus yeah. of aggrandizement. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many deeds of power in your name? That we gets them in trouble every time. Luke 6.46, one little verse. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do what I tell you. Oh. And do not do what I tell you. If you're going to call me Lord, if you're going to call me Lord, then do what I tell you. If you're not doing what I tell you to do, you don't call me Lord, literally. Then continuing, verse uh, 724. Everyone who then who hears these words, now we're doing self-deception. We're almost done. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. I'm sorry, I can never go through this without thinking about the three little pigs. <laughs> house, straw. sticks, and rock. How, a house of straw, a house of sticks, and a house of brick. All right? Um, uh, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, and huffed and he puffed, and he blew his house down and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Dun, 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 dun. Luke. Luke 13. Let's start at 25. When once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then in reply he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. Luke has made it so much easier. He's re re removed this issue of, Well, my gosh, we preached in your name. We delivered in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did deeds of power in your name. Here that is, he makes it easier. He says, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And I will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. And that's right after the door thing again. Yeah. Look into it. And of course, straight across, you have the two builders, 647 through 49. I will show you what someone is like who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood rose, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river bursts against it, immediately it fell and great was the ruin of that house. Luke ruins the, the three little pigs analogy here. Darn it. More like the ark. You know? But it's a little clearer. It's a little clearer. Mm -hmm. 
What's he saying? In all of this, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying here? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came. What are the rains, what are the floods, and what are the winds? Sounds like life to me. The difficulties of life, the problems of life, the agonies of life, the stresses of life, the evil of life. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. And if you've built it on sand and not on the rock of Jesus' teachings, you're going to lose it all. Everything that has been taught thus far from 5-2 through 7, 24 through 27 in Matthew's Gospel, if you don't build on that, when the, when the difficulties of life come, it's gone. It gets washed away. It gets totally, utterly destroyed. And you can claim you've heard Jesus. You can claim you've preached his name. You can claim that you've delivered people from demons. You can claim that you've done mighty works of power. But if you don't live his word, if you don't do his will, if you don't do what he says, to quote Luke in his version of this, then he's not your Lord. He's not going to know you. You haven't built on rock. He's going to say, go away. Get lost. You may have claimed to have done it in my name, but you did it in your own name. You may have claimed to be proclaiming for me, but in reality, you were doing it for yourself. You were doing it your own way. You were, in effect, going the easy road to the open, wide open gate and not the hard road to the narrow gate. You were asking and knocking and searching for your own desires and your own needs, not for God's will, not my calling, to go back through what we've read tonight. Susan, you've got to remember, most of us are sinners and we're not going to be quite there, choosing that exactly perfect gate every time. Thank you, because that's exactly where we all are. We all fail in this. And then the end, that's where Christ's death on the cross then becomes so critically important. Because apart from his death on the cross for our sins, we all fail miserably here. This is the standard. And it's a standard, a heck of a lot harder standard. As we've learned, as we've read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' standard is much harder than the law. The law says, if you murder, you've broken the law. Jesus says, if you hate with your heart, you've committed murder. The law says, if you commit adultery, have sex with someone who's married, or break the marriage covenant by having sex with them, and you're in a marriage, and they're in a marriage, or whichever, you've broken the law. You deserve death. And Jesus says, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus makes the law far harder. Jesus' ethic is far beyond the standards of the Mosaic Covenant. The standards of the Mosaic Covenant, as interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees, is a wide road, with a, I mean, a, an easy road with a wide gate. And everybody finds it. Whereas, in reality, the road that God has for us, God's will for us, the asking, the searching, and the knocking, 
is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, by our own strength, by our own abilities, by our own power. We are evil! And anytime we give good to anything, even our children, it's because of God. We're evil and we're going to do evil things. This is going to sound just like a good Calvinist here. Uh, total depravity. We are totally depraved. But, but God created us. That's the Imago Dei concept, but got to remember, God created us, but we've fallen. We are sinners. We have fallen. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. That's why Jesus came. To show us our need of grace because we can't do the reality of God's call. And then that's why Jesus died. Because we can't. He then takes it all on himself so that we then simply have to turn and trust in him. So you're saying he created us with the ability, but we choose not to. Originally, he created us perfect, but with the ability to choose to trust or not to trust. We decided to not trust, we fall, and then we, the only thing we have left as a result of that, because of God's grace and what Jesus did for us on the cross, the only thing we have is the ability to say yes or no. That's called prevenient grace. Otherwise, we're totally evil. If you want to follow this, you're evil, evil, evil. You're Dr. Evil. Not, not evil light. Evil grandissimo. Big evil. And, and it's, uh, we're, we're evil. And we're not going to do the right thing. But God... In God's wisdom gave Christ Jesus who died on the cross and the universal grant from the cross is prevenient grace, the grace that goes before us that makes it possible for us again to say either yes or no. And if we say no, then we're going to go down the wide road to the big gate and go to hell and get our cup of coffee and after a few minutes they'll tell us to get back on our heads in the muck. But if we say yes then God starts to work on us, starts to transform us, starts to, to in, mold us and shape us after God's will, teaches us how to ask and search and knock in accordance with God's will, helps us to comprehend the way that's been described here in the Sermon on the Mount as being a way that flows from God's grace, not from our own strengths and abilities. So that this becomes possible for us to do, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and what Christ did for us. Dying for us and then giving us grace and the inner presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, to quote Luke, the great gift. So if we don't seek his word and his heart, there are two kinds of people that will not go through the gate. And we expect the one one that goes, yeah, nice, nice story, nice mythology, catch you later, got some girls and a bunch of pearls and some pigs and, uh -huh. yeah. and my dad's rich and I'll yeah, be fine. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Those are the ones. Okay. Yeah. Everybody knows they're going to hell. Okay. But then there are the kind, sweet people who realize that they were are evil because we've fallen and say, I am not worthy, and believe that. 
and they're going to go to hell as well. Unless they get help. Because they said they're not worthy. If you recognize that you are incapable, if you recognize your need of grace, if you recognize what Christ has done to provide for a way, then no, they're not going to hell. But it entails things like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It entails the hard road. It entails the narrow gate. So if you're a nice, good person, you're not, you know, you, you, you give good things to your children. And you do unto others. No. If you don't do unto others, oh. if you if you're good do good things for your children and you're a generally a nice person, you don't go out there and party and screw everything inside and murder people and all, but you live your life generally very nicely. You're still going down the nice easy road to a wide open gate. But if you recognize that you yourself are insufficient, you yourself are incapable of fulfilling God's will, you by yourself can't do this in its entirety. You by yourself can't do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You by yourself can't ask, seek, and knock in accordance with God's will. You by yourself would be tempted to throw pearls before swine. You by yourself can't look without getting lustful in your heart. You by yourself can't avoid hating in your heart and therefore committing spiritual murder. You by yourself can't do any of these things. Anything that you do tends to be for yourself. And you recognize that. And if you understand that and accept that and, and understand that it's not you, therefore, but Christ who then intercedes. Because he did it all. Because he could do it all. And therefore, he did it for you. And then he took the penalty that you deserve for being incapable if you understand that and accept that, then the gift, the free gift, is salvation. Craig and I had this similar talk, and that's why I searched out the Bible study. Is and this is a friend of ours, and he had said, "Do you truly believe in the grace of God? Because even though you're a good person." And even if you are following the golden rule, and even if you are um, doing the things like these people, doing the things, the, the miracles and the good deeds and all that, you are still going to go to hell right along with those schmucks. Well, he didn't use that word. But no, that's a good description. <laughs> um, and, and, and I stood there shocked and went, you're right. I have to absolutely believe in the grace of God because if I don't, I'm just a nice schmuck. <laughs> well, I would argue that you don't really do the golden rule. You really can't do the golden rule if you're not empowered by Christ's grace to do it. You can't really preach in his name. You can't really deliver de people from demons in his name. You can't really... Um, do good, powerful works in his name 
if if you don't have the grace of God empowering you to do it. You can't ask, search, and knock if you don't have the grace of God empowering you to do it. You can't do any of this if you don't have the grace of God empowering you to do it. You can't hear his word and build your life upon, build your house upon the rock of his word if you're not being empowered by God's grace to do it. Any of it is impossible. You may look good, you may smell good, you may act good, you may have appeared to be doing all of these good things, but you're really doing them for yourself out of your own strengths and abilities. You may have a relative degree of goodness in this world, by this world's standards, even by the standards of the Bible. But if the source is you, the purpose is you, the will is you, the desire is you, guess what? It's you who's in charge. You can't say, Lord, Lord. You is all alone. And that's it. Yeah, you is all alone. You is in charge, to continue the bad grammar. You is in charge, you is all alone, and you is in trouble. Because you're going down that nice, easy road if you can't call the Lord, Lord. Well, you know, not everyone who calls Lord, Lord will enter into heaven. Yeah, because most of the people who are calling Lord, Lord aren't calling Jesus Lord. They're calling themselves Lord. And you can tell that by what they're doing. How they're living their life. Well, I thought that they were doing pretty good. Take a close look. Take a close look at the fruit that's being produced. Is it self-aggrandizement? That's where I take a look at so many of you know, the TV preachers and whatnot, and you look at what they do. What, what's his face with the white suits? Benny uh, Hinn. Huh, Benny Hinn. Hinn. Good example, Benny Hinn. Uh, white suits, uh, mansions, uh, excuse me, everything seems to be focused in on himself, on building for himself. I got a problem with that. Because it always seems to be me-focused. Look at me. Look how wonderful I am. That might be what, what God, I'm doing for Jesus. That might be what God wants him to have. Those man many mansions up there will just have on earth. Well, I, I, again, if it's just the mansions, I don't. That's 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 another issue. That's okay. But it's look what I'm doing for Jesus. Who's yeah. first in that? I. What is in the middle of the word sin? You remember this one. You remember this one. Yes. What's in the middle of the word sin? Great big eye. The focus is what we were doing for Jesus in these people's whining. Lord, we said, Lord, we did all these things. Yeah, and who did you do them for? Yourself. Not for me. You built on sand. You may have thought you were building on rock. Some pretty weak sandstone, the water washed away. If you are truly living the golden rule, if you're truly producing fruit, if you're truly building on rock, if you're truly asking, searching, and knocking in accordance with God's will, the only way to do any of that is by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. We learn in the beginning of the, of the Sermon on the Mount that the law's stipulations are nothing compared to Christ's. He points out it's impossible for us to do it. 
He points out that we're not supposed to be praying for others to see. It's, it's for God. It's, 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 it's to be in communion with God. If other people see and laud what you're doing, well, you got your reward. You got it from them. You should be praying, you know, metaphorically speaking, in secret. Fasting, where we see our treasures, our eyes, are they sound? God and mammon, anxiety. All of these things point toward the fact that we are stuck in our sin. We are stuck in our ability to do any of this that he, that he went through at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, we're usually judging our brothers and sisters. And we're supposed to be realizing that God is our judge, all of us. We are not in any position to judge. Judge not that ye shall not be judged. Then you get down to it, what we looked at tonight. Ask, seek not, golden rule. The ways, the treat and the fruit, the trees and the fruit, Lord, Lord, self-deception, and the two builders. We're usually building on sand. We build on ourselves, we're building on sand. We build on some philosopher of this life, we're building on sand. It won't stand up to the problems of life, to the realities and the hardships of life, to the realities and hardships of eternity. Instead, we should be building on Christ Jesus and his word and what he says and calls us to do and be in calling him Lord and, and depending only on him. I mean, in, in this sense, I sound a whole heck of a lot like a Calvinist. Not in the predestination concept, but in the total depravity concept. We're talking about evil and those earlier renditions of evil. There is a sense in which I draw a lot, I draw that concept of evil closer and closer and closer and closer to that ultimate idea. The self-serving nature. What is evil here? It is the desire to have my own way. I did it my way. That's the important thing. And if you have that attitude, guess what? That's evil. Oh, well, you're not hurting people by it. Well, how do you know? You might be hurting yourself. It's not, is it almost like it's not why you're doing, what your good things are doing, but why you're doing it? Your reasons for doing it. The, the fruit, the fruit, it will be bad fruit, i.e. if you're doing it for yourself. If you're doing it for God, empowered by God, it will automatically be good fruit. Without question. Anything that you do, that you do for God, but that in truth you do it for yourself, you've just gotten your reward to follow the principles earlier established. If you do what God has empowered you to do through God's strength, for God, and not for yourself, that produces the best fruit of all. And that's only doable, according to Luke, through the Holy Spirit. Thoughts, questions? So, what about this need for God? I know that I need Jesus in my life. That's the act of God's prevenient grace pinging on you, saying, just as we found out 
in Matthew 5, 2 through 5, 48, and 6, 1 through 6, 34, just as we found out through the whole two, first two-thirds of Sermon on the Mount, we ourselves are inadequate. We need Jesus. And because we need Jesus, because we need Jesus to, to do any of this, he's our Lord. He's the only source that we can turn to, and we should turn to him. So when I'm turning to other sources to fill that need, then I know that I'm moving away from my mark. Exactly. And that's when I will fall short. Exactly. The essence of sin is falling short of the target. Are you and the other 99.9% of humanity? Well, well, me too. All, not 99.9%. Yeah. 100%. 100%. 100%. You've got to wonder why Abraham and David and some of those people made it, you know? Because of God's grace. That's the only way. It wasn't anything that, it, it was not in any way, shape, or form their goodness. It was entirely God's grace. Which is good news for us. Oh, absolutely. Well, last, this past Sunday, the message. What was accounted to him as righteousness wasn't the good things that he did. It was his amen in God. Expressing faith, Hebrew faith, faith. Acting in faith. And that faithful action, believing, to translate it poorly, was accounted to him as righteousness. Not the things that he did, he was rather a nasty sinner, like us. But because he had faith, righteousness was imputed to him. He certainly didn't deserve it. He's a whining, sneaking little jerk at times. I mean, he, he didn't have to get whipped and forced into that tent with Hagar. I mean, you know, here's God. God's stupid. God doesn't know about things like menopause. And so Abram and Sarah decide, okay, well, we'll get God's job done for God. God's promised you kids like the stars up in the heaven and the sands like by the seashore. But I'm old and you're ugly. So here, we'll solve it this way. Here is my handmaid, Hagar. She's nice. She's pretty. She's nubile. Here, you're in the tent over here. You go in there and you have a kid with her and you'll get God's will done for God. Is that... Building on a rock? Is that doing what God said? Is that asking, seeking, and knocking in accordance with God's will? Hell no! Sandstone. That, exactly. And because of that, a hell of a lot of trouble, including the entire Palestinian Jewish problem, yes. resulted. Yeah. Why God. did you do that, Abram? We had just gone in that tent. We and that was after God imputed to him the faith as righteousness. And then when he comes out and he whines and complains about it. Oh, no, I've not got this problem. i got Ishmael. What the hell am I going to do with this? And God says, Ishmael has his own promises, but take a look up there. you still got them stars, and you still got that sand down there, and you're still going to have a kid with her. <laughs> Are you crazy? She's an old bat. And she laughs. Are you crazy? I'm going to get to have kids sucking on my boobs? Yes. Literally. Yeah. You're going to give children suck in old age. <laughs> you're crazy. She says, why did you laugh, God asks. Oh, I didn't laugh. Well, yes, you did laugh. And then sure enough, she had a kid, Isaac. 
absolute total miracle, incapable, impossible by human standards. Just like this is impossible by human standards. I'm quoting Paul right out of Galatians here. This is impossible by human standards. What Jesus calls us to do is impossible by human standards, but not to God and not by God's grace in us. The extent that anybody lives by the golden rule, lives by faith, exercises faith, does good works, to by any extent they do any of that, they do it from God. They do it from God. And when you do that, you've built on rock, you've produced good fruit. Now it's a tiny little percentage of people who do that, because that's the hard road and it's a narrow gate. But it's impossible for 100% apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God. That's where the Calvinists are right in their message of total depravity. They're wrong in that they say that the death of Jesus on the cross only paid for the sins of the elect. <laughs> this concept of limited atonement is a bunch of baloney. But that's what they believe. They're wrong. Uh, God's grace goes to all in prevenience, which enables some to hear, recognize their need, respond with faith. God justifies them, empowers them, starts to transform them, starts to sanctify them, and they start to change and they start to live according in more and greater degrees slowly over time in accordance with God's will. Their houses get built on the rock of Jesus. They ask, they search, they knock. Good fruit starts to come from their living and you start to see the grace of God flowing from them to others as means of grace as the body of Christ. That's the good Arminian approach. <laughs> good Wesleyan approach. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal senior pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.